Good morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane, along with Reagan Gilliland, uh, my wife. We are the co-pastors here in Thrive Worship. We are glad that you are with us this morning. A special greeting to those of you who are with us for the first time or maybe the second time. Uh, this New Year season, we know, brings a lot of resolutions. I, for one, have not had a Dr. Pepper in like a month, uh, so that's going awesome. I've ran every other day for two weeks, um, so I'm hating my life. Um, so that's going really great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, please, this sermon is all about you cheering me on so I can continue to run because um, <laughs> I need a lot of motivation. Um, and we also know that a lot of people, you know, resolve to make positive changes, and maybe that positive change for you is trying to get engaged with the church community, and so we just hope that uh, you can find that here, and we hope that if nothing else, you experience the love of God uh, and the presence of Christ this morning at Lover's Lane. So uh, we are starting a new sermon series today called No Outsiders that Dee Dee spoke of, and can we just I know we, we do this from time to time, but can we say thank you to our worship team? Because they do a fantastic job every single week of putting me in the spirit to worship. So no outsiders, this is going to be a series where we are talking about the inclusive nature of who God is and who the church is meant to be and how God's love is, is meant to be experienced. And, um, and when I say inclusive, I, I want you to try, to try to not attach too many connotations to that because maybe that's a word that for you is a great word or maybe that's a word that makes you a little suspicious. What's this series really about? Uh, we're going to be talking and Thrive about the letter of Paul to the church in Corinth called 1 Corinthians, and, uh, and this is a letter that Paul's writing to a church in a city called Corinth that is going through some, some growing pains, as many of the churches did in, in his day. So if you don't know anything about the Bible, you know, it's, it is a new year. I know we've got new faces. I don't want to make any assumptions today. The Apostle Paul was a Jewish leader who came to understand who Christ was through this really radical spiritual experience, and he became a Jewish person who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So he was a Jewish man that was a leader in this Christian movement. And, uh, and he became something of a church planter, which means that he traveled all throughout uh, the Mediterranean, uh, planting and mentoring churches in this new Christian movement as a part of the Jewish faith. And one of the places that he stopped was in Corinth. And, uh, and we'll talk about the city of Corinth in just a second. But when Paul would leave these churches, he would continue to write them letters as a way to inspire them, to encourage them, to address maybe real meaningful issues they had in their churches as a mentor. And that's where a lot of the letters in our New Testament come from, are these letters that Paul is writing to churches as a pastoral mentor, right? And that's what the first letter to the Corinthians that we have in our scriptures is. It's a pastoral mentoring kind of letter. And the reason we'll be studying this during the, the breadth of this uh, series is because the running theme that Paul has is this inclusive message of who God is and who God is here for. And Paul understood this inclusivity maybe more than most because he had been a prejudiced Jewish leader. He had been someone who had, who had uh, gone out and attacked Christians early on in the Christian movement. He had had them punished or in some cases even killed. And he was proud of being a persecutor of Christians. And then when he had this crazy spiritual experience, he began to realize that God's love was not just for one group of people, but for everybody. And that really changed and shaped the way that he lived the rest of his life. And he got out and he traveled and traveled and traveled, ended up giving his life for the sake of the church. And so this letter to the to the Corinthians is really a love letter to this really big, bigger than we can possibly imagine size of God's love. And at the same time, that God wants not just part of us, but all of us. And so we're going to be studying this letter for the next several weeks. Today we're going to turn our attention to the first chapter. 
Um, because Paul is going to begin to address the root issue in this Corinthian church. And it's this issue of division that they're experiencing. We'll talk more about why they're experiencing that in just a second. Um, But for now, let's pray over our scripture. And we're going to begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. If you've got your Bibles with you, we'll also have it on the screens. And um, we pray over our scripture reading because we want to invite God's Spirit to be part of this time that our hearts and our minds could be open to receive this living text again. Okay, that's why we pray before we read scripture. Let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious God, we do give you thanks for this day. On a cold January morning when we get to come to a warm space, both in temperature and in spirit, God, let us remember those who don't have someplace warm to spend their Sunday morning, who didn't have a comfortable bed or a warm place to sleep last night, who didn't have a meal waiting for them this morning, who won't maybe have a meal all day today. God, we remember them this morning. And we know that as we leave this place, you'll inspire us to go and be the church uh, for those who have no warmth. God, as we prepare to encounter your scripture again, as we prepare to hear a message of no outsiders, would you open our hearts and our minds that we could receive your word once again, that it could leap off of the screens, off the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts, that it might change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of the one who reconciles us to you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, it says this. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Now I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree with each other and don't be divided into rival groups. Instead, be restored with the same mind and the same purpose. My brothers and sisters, he says again, Chloe's people gave me some information about you that you're fighting with each other. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas. These are all Christian church leaders early in the Christian church. I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in Paul's name? Thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that nobody can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I baptized the house of Stephanus too. Otherwise, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. And Christ didn't send me to preach the good news with clever words so that Christ's cross won't be emptied of its meaning. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say thanks be to God. Amen. So... Let's talk about the city of Corinth for a second, because Paul is saying, uh, this woman, this woman named Chloe has told me that you guys are fighting amongst yourselves, that there's these sort of rival groups, and and some of you are saying, I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Cephas, and I belong to Paul. We'll talk about that in a second, but for first, let's talk about the city of Corinth, because there's a reason, I think, why the Corinthian church is experiencing some divisions uh, that are kind of unique to their location. Um, so the city of Corinth is in the, the Greco-Roman Empire, right? This was the massive empire at the time of the early Christian church. And it, it was an interesting city because it was something of a Wild West kind of city. Uh, it was a place, you know, the, the city of Rome was old and established with really old established families. And, and the, your social status was very fixed. If you were born poor, you're going to die poor. If you were born rich, you're going to die rich. And, and, and there was a big gap between the two. And Corinth was this kind of new trade hub. It was 
a place where things were kind of booming, where if you wanted to make it in the world, you could go to Corinth. If you were a tradesperson or a merchant or something, you could work your way up and establish yourself. There was opportunity in Corinth that didn't exist maybe in every other city in the Greco-Roman Empire. And so it's this place that people went because they wanted to increase their wealth. They wanted to increase their social status. It had a hot economy. Is it beginning to sound like a city we might be familiar with? Right? This is a place where people knew that, that things were booming and they could make it and they could get a privacy fence and they could get a bigger house and, and they could get that brand new Mazda that they were really wanting. Right? Okay, now I'm describing a different city. But there are parallels and I want us to see those parallels. Now, Corinth was also, <clears throat> this is why I have the coffee. So, um, so Corinth is this place where people are coming to the city. Imagine the personality types that are attracted to Corinth. Also, this might not be hard, too hard to imagine, right? People who are competitive, people who like to climb the ladder, people who are a little bit too image or status conscious, people who are driven by wealth and amassing wealth and by climbing that social ladder. You're beginning to get an idea of the type of people living in Corinth. And then I want you to imagine growing a church in Corinth, right? And you're getting all these people who are really competitive, who are really aware of their social status, who are, who are always trying to climb, and, and they're not really going to do anything unless it increases them a little bit. And then you get all those people together and you start a church. Now, what's that church going to look like? Now, Corinth's really diverse. You know, it's a trade hub, so you've got people from all over the empire moving there. So it's really diverse, a lot of different opinions, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different cultures and backgrounds. You got the spirit of competition. So I bet as a church that grew pretty quickly, yeah, they would have taken pride in evangelism. I brought four people to church this weekend, you know. But then there's that spirit of competition that also can become a challenge because did you see who's sitting on their pew this week? I'm sorry, you're sitting in my pew. That's my pew. I sit on the third pew. You need to go sit in the back, right? You're beginning to picture this church a little bit. And so these, these sort of rival groups creep in, and, and church becomes about something that it's not supposed to be about. Paul realizes that the Corinthian church is beginning to reflect its culture in a really harmful way. And I think in a lot of ways we're seeing parallels today. Because it would not be an overstatement to say that we're living in a very divided time, right? There's a lot of rivalry in our world right now. Our government is shut down over rivalry and disagreement, and lines being drawn. Uh, we live in a divided time. Lines divided by race, divided by gender, divided by sexuality, divided by you name it, economic position. And the worst thing the church can do, I think, would be to, to reflect those divisions. Paul knows this. It's why in the very first, you know, he, he opens with the first Not nine verses. It's just sort of the, hey, the how you do in verses of 1 Corinthians. But in verse 10, he says, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, agree with each other. He's addressing it from the very beginning. Agree with each other and don't be divided into rival groups. Instead, be restored with the same mind and the same purpose. Paul knows that before he can get into any sort of theology or any sort of, of you know, leading them as a pastor, he's got to address, hey guys, you've got, you got a heart condition problem, and that problem is you're letting divisiveness creep into the church, and that's going to kill you. That's going to kill you. We talk a lot about how, you know, in the, in the Christian world, we talk a lot about how the church shouldn't be driven by culture, but the church should, you know, run counterculture, and we should be driven by our own selves, and, and, and we talk about that a lot with social hot-button issues, it comes up in those debates all the time. You know, we shouldn't be driven by culture. And yet, I wonder if the one area of culture that we reflect worst of all is that divisive nature at times. And maybe that's the most dangerous thing that we could begin to look like culture, 
is allowing that divisiveness to creep in. Paul knows this. Now, I think Paul realizes that the church really could and should be a witness against that division. That if the church, if the Christian church is really living into its Jesus witness, that we could be a voice, a healing balm for our communities and for our cities and for our countries to be a, a, a healing agent for those divisions. He wants that for the church. And, but before we can get there, we need to understand something about how we heal divisions and how we exist as a united church. And I use that word united for a reason because unity is what Paul is after. Unity is a word that gets thrown around a lot right now, and it can be confusing as to what it really means. I think Paul understands something that we cannot forget, and that is this. We cannot mistake uniformity for unity. We cannot mistake uniformity for unity. Paul knows who he's writing to. He's been to Corinth. He gets that it's a weird kind of city. The city of Dallas is incredibly diverse, yes? It's incredibly diverse, Paul knows that if you're going to do church in this kind of a community, looking for a church to be uniform is probably not realistic. In fact, it's not really what God desires. God doesn't want us to all think, talk, act, look, and behave and believe exactly the same way, or else he would have made us all think, talk, act, like, believe, I missed one, all the same way. I mean, look around this room right now. If you're watching at home and you've got someone next to you, look at them. I bet they don't look just like you unless you're twins. That'd be weird, okay? Don't go too far down that rabbit trail. But, I mean, look around this room right now. Do you think God wants uniformity? I don't. And yet I still think unity is something worth pursuing. I think Paul believes that unity is worth pursuing. But we can't pursue it unless we understand that unity is not uniformity. When we go after unity in the church, it's not because we want everybody to be robots and to be repeating the same lines after each other. At Lover's Lane, we believe in critical thinking Christians. I say frequently, please, you're allowed to disagree with your pastor. I don't want a church full of people that think, talk, act, believe the same way as Stan or as me or as Reagan or as Kay or as any of us. The question becomes, how do we get there? How do we establish a culture of unity in the church? How do we establish a culture of unity in the church that we're not going to find in our surrounding culture because it just seems to be getting more and more divided? Where does it come from in the church? And notice that Paul immediately begins talking about baptism. Baptism is going to be the key for us this morning. Paul says, what I mean is this. He begins to address one part of this division that really bothers him, and I'll explain why. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Christ. Paul says, has Christ been divided? Was Paul, he's talking about himself in third person, was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? See, Paul realizes that the, divis the, the, the divisive culture in Corinth has gotten so bad in the church that they're beginning to view their baptism through that lens of divisiveness. Their baptism is now a thing that gives them increased social status. They go, you know, Apollos baptized me, you know. Oh, no, well, I was baptized by Cephas, so I'm, you know, my baptism probably was a little bit better than yours, you know. And, and, and Paul realizes that it's gotten so twisted because that is like the antithesis, the opposite of what baptism is intended to mean. Baptism is a core part of who we are at Lover's Lane. Because about 15 years ago, we began emphasizing baptism around the same time that we adopted this mission statement of loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And guess what? When you tell God you're ready to love all people into relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what God is going to send you? All people, right? 
And God began to send Lover's Lane, a deaf community, and a Heart of Africa community, and a Zimbabwean community, and God began to send us LGBT members, and God began to send us more diversity than we had ever experienced before. And we had to decide what's going to happen with our baptism. You know, because there's some churches that that becomes an issue. I mean, we want them here, but are you going to baptize those, those people? And I love what Stan says when he talks about this part of our history. He says, you know, of course we began baptizing anybody and everybody. I mean, we were a church that was bringing in more people in baptism than in any other way of membership. Most Methodist churches receive people by transferring from another church, which is great, but it's kind of a net zero, right? And, and Lover's Lane became this place that we were baptizing everybody. And Stan's favorite thing is, and we didn't switch out the water in between either. We all got into the same waters of baptism, and there's something cool about what happens, because let me, let me break down baptism for a second, because maybe you're like me, and, and, and you know, uh, even a couple of years ago, I didn't really understand the, the powerful nature of baptism, and so uh, I don't want to just talk about it as though we all understand it. Baptism is this sacrament, it's this sign, this symbol of God's love of us. It's a way that we mark people as a child of God. We baptize infants because we believe it's not about the child, it's about God's first love of that child. And in fact, we baptize adults still recognizing that God loved them way before they could ever make a decision for Christ. And so we baptize people whether they're three weeks old or 99 years old, and we're happy to. Because it's about that love of God that touches every single child of God that's marked by that Holy Spirit moment of baptism. But there's something else that happens in baptism that sometimes we de-emphasize. And I wish that we could, we could even lift it up possibly even more. Because as much as baptism is about recognizing that love between God and the person being baptized, baptism is also about the love of the community and the ushering of that person into the Christian family. At Lover's Lane, when you're baptized, we don't ask you your last name because we like to say your last name is Christian. You're in this family now. And baptism is sort of that welcoming party. It's that, it's that ushering in that person to the now the whole family fold of faith. And what happens when we begin to understand that correctly is it begins to level the playing field. When we see each other as baptized sisters and brothers in the faith, notice that Paul refers to them as brothers and sisters several times in this passage. We begin to see each other not as the definitions and the labels that we might carry with us outside of these walls and outside of this community. When we begin to see each other as simply baptized sisters and brothers in the faith, it changes the way that we interact. It changes the way that we understand division and conflict. Because now I'm not fighting between a Democrat and Republican, I'm fighting as a brother and sister. I'm not fighting about the same kind of divisions that we might fight about out in the real world. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that when you walk into the waters of baptism, all of a sudden, all of your labels fall off of you. We live in the real world, yes. We live in a world where there are still dividing lines based on race, based on gender, based on sexuality, based on economic condition. Those things still exist, but when we enter into the Christian community, when we walk into those waters of baptism, that Holy Spirit, that water washes away our sins, yes, but it also washes away the labels. It washes away the walls. It washes away the boundaries. It washes away the stereotypes. And that's why the Christian community ought to be the most potent voice against division in the world if we could live into that baptismal vow and covenant to see one another not as anything that we might assume outside of the Christian community, but seeing one another as sisters and brothers in the faith. Full stop, the end. You are a child of God. Done. Now, that sounds pretty simple, 
And this is kind of a simple truth Sunday, but, but Paul's calling this Corinthian church back because they've forgotten that kind of a simple truth. That baptism, it allows us to level the playing field in a way that we will never find outside of the Christian community. Put simply, it doesn't matter how we enter the waters of baptism. We leave as equals. I don't care if you're walking in as a CEO or as someone who's experiencing homelessness. I don't care if you walk in as a 93-year-old, sweet old Sunday school teacher or a 23-year-old former offender. We walk into the waters of baptism, possibly radically different, and we leave them as sisters and brothers in the faith. That's what Paul's trying to remind the Corinthian church. And he's reminding them of this because he realizes that baptism has the powerful potential to unite us in a way that nothing else can. See, at the end of this scripture, Paul says to the Corinthians, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. Now, obviously, Paul is a fan of baptism. He's not saying baptism is bad. But he's saying, if if baptism is becoming this divisive and, and this distracting for you, you know what, what I really came to do, let's get back to what I really came to do. I came to preach the good news. Oh, and he says, and Christ didn't send me to preach the good news with clever words so that Christ's cross won't be emptied of its meaning. You know, Paul was notoriously a very good writer and a very bad public speaker. He says, when I came and preached the good news, I didn't use fancy words. I just told you who Jesus was. That was the whole point of me coming in the first place. That was the whole point of this church. It wasn't to get into fights around baptism. You've missed the point. You've forgotten why we're here. Paul is calling the Corinthian church back to the main thing. At the start of this new year, I think it's important for us to, as a church, collectively remember our baptisms and be called back to the main thing. Because it can be really easy to to be distracted. There's a lot of things happening in the world. There's a lot of things happening in our personal worlds, right? There's a lot of things happening in the world of the church. There's a lot of things that could distract us and divide us. And Paul is crying out to the Corinthian church, and I think he's crying out to the Dallas church, and he's saying, don't get distracted from the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus. It's this really simple message of a Savior who came to us at Christmas time, who lived and worked among us, who brought sight to the blind, who brought healing to the sick, who set the oppressed free. A Savior who lived and who died, not to condemn the world, but because God loved the world so that the world could live, and that includes you and me. Paul is reminding us that Jesus' message is simple. I died so that the world could live, including you. Now that's a message that I need to remind myself of. I need to remember my baptism and remind myself of this message as I start my year. Because sometimes, as, even as a pastor, I can make church so complicated. I can make my faith so overcomplicated. Or I can get distracted about this, that, or the other. And I need to be called back to the fact that I am a Christian. I'm a Jesus follower. Because at one point in my life, I heard this message loud and clear. And it resonated with my soul. That Jesus loved the world. No outsiders. Jesus died for the world so that the world could live. And that includes me. We've got to remember why we're here. 
We've got to remember our baptisms. We have to remember why we're here. I was at a wedding, officiating a wedding one time, and uh, it's with an awesome couple. The, the groom, um, very straight-laced guy, uh, very put together, but you know, kind of serious, kind of understated, soft-spoken, uh, very punctual. You, you, you get the idea. You know people like this, right? Um, and, and, but he just he liked things done a, a, a you know a certain way, and and you know everybody was backstage in this little chapel, and we were in the back room with the groom and all the the groomsmen, and um, everybody's dressed, everybody looks good. We're sitting there, and things are running a little bit behind time, and. I can see his eyes are just all over the place, and his breathing's a little fast, and he's just getting antsy, you know. Um, and I hear him listening. There's a string quartet playing, and, and um, they're playing this beautiful song, but he, I hear him muttering to himself, that's the wrong version. I told him to play a different version, you know. Um, and he's just, like, getting inside of his head, and, like, he's about to get married, and he's worried about what version of this random song the, the quartet is playing, you know. Like, that's what he's going to remember at the end of this day. And, he, and he's just sort of getting agitated. He's fidgeting a lot. He's messing with his son's, you know, pocket square. And, and, um, and we, I'd even tried praying with us, you know, just sort of soothing her. This is after the prayer, right? That's sort of where we are, right? And the wedding's running behind time. And so he's just getting more and more antsy and anxious. And all of a sudden, his son, standing there, his son was one of the groomsmen. He's standing there. And he starts giggling. He just gets this huge smile on his face and starts giggling. And, and the groom, he sort of looks at him kind of sternly. You know, this is a very serious moment, so I'm you know, about to get married, and the quartet's playing the wrong version of the song. And all of a sudden, I see his nose go, and then he realizes why his son's giggling, because um, he smelled it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I smelled it, and I see this smirk appear on the, you know, he was fighting it as hard as he could, but his, his face just, this smirk comes across it, and he begins to smile, and he starts giggling, and then I can't help it, I start laughing out loud, and the groomsmen are all laughing, the wedding coordinator's laughing, the videographer's laughing, all of a sudden, we're busting the gut because the sun just farted, right? <laughs> but it was a beautiful moment. <laughs> it was. It was a beautiful moment. Why was it a beautiful moment? Because in that moment, the groom remembered why he was there. It had nothing to do with the string quartet. It had nothing to do with having his pocket square adjusted correctly or his vest was pressed down nicely. It had everything to do with celebrating the love of God, even if that is the simple joy of laughing at someone passing gas. There's something humorous in a 12-year-old boy way about that, but there's something true about that too, that sometimes we need something to jolt us out of that, that anxiety and that, and that fear and that frustration in that moment. We need something to jolt us out and remind us why we're here. And I mean, that smile, I'll never forget that smile on his face. And we walked, it was at that moment, we said, okay, they're ready. We walked out and everyone was just all smiles. Tomorrow marks 40 days until a really important meeting in our denomination. Uh, the United Methodist Church, if this is your first time, like that, you're like, what? So the United Methodist Church is a global denomination, and normally we meet every four years to revise our book of discipline, which is basically, I know it sounds mean, it's, it's a book of how we run the church, basically. It's all of our rules and regulations, some of our um, core doctrines, that kind of thing. And for a long, long 40-plus years, we have been arguing over the issue of human sexuality, as many denominations have. And we have a special meeting of our denomination and delegates from around the world, several 
several, several hundred delegates from around the world will be gathering on February 23rd. Um, and they'll be debating just this singular uh, set of issues around um, marriage and ordination and human sexuality. And uh, they've been working for a couple of years now. There's this commission that's been doing a lot of hard work, putting together some plans for a way forward. A um, lot of prayer, a lot of work has gone into this. And tomorrow is 40 days until that special conference begins. And the conference will be four or five days long. And something could happen. Something could change or nothing could happen and we could be in the same debate that we've been in for 40 plus years now. Um, today as we talk about remembering our baptisms and remembering why we're here and a church who's experiencing divisions because uh, we want to believe we live in a world of winners and losers, I can't help but think that we as a church, um, we ought to offer ourselves in prayer for these next 40 days, you know. Let me say this, whatever happens in this called conference, Lover's Lane is going to keep doing Lover's Lane ministry before, during, and after this conference. Amen? Like, we're not, we're not defined in our ministry uh, by a random meeting in St. Louis. We will continue to love all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ before, during, and after this meeting. Amen? Amen. And yet, the work that they are about is important work, and it is good work. Is work that people have put a lot of time and energy and prayer and spirit into. And I think if we as a church could offer them a sign of hope and simply saying, we are going to be praying for you, the delegates. We're going to be praying for the bishops. We're going to be praying for anyone and everyone who will be in any and every room where an important conversation is happening because these things do matter. Even if they're not the main thing, these things do matter. And yet, as we pray about this, could we also keep our eyes fixed on why we're here? See, my prayer for this conference is that they could have a, a little bit of a fart and giggle moment. I mean that. Because people are going to be walking in very tense. Can you imagine the faces on these delegates? They've been sent God knows how many emails and how many papers. Stan and I wrote a book and sent it to all of them. They're going to be walking in tents, and they're going to be a little bit like this groom, and they're going to be muttering under their breath about this isn't the right way, and this isn't how it's supposed to be going on. And, and God, I just pray that the Holy Spirit could show up like a wind. <laughs> I do. And I pray that there could be a moment when, when lightness could enter in and when joy could take hold. And maybe the Holy Spirit could help them remember our baptisms and something profound could happen. And we could move forward as a church remembering why we're here. That's going to be my prayer these next 40 days. I would ask that you could make it your own these next 40 days as well. Be lifting up our delegates and our denomination in your prayers. Church, this Sunday we remember our baptisms. We remember why we're here, not because we want to live in a world of division and winners and losers, but because we want to live in a world that Jesus loved so much that he died so that we could live, even you and even me. And that is a message worth living for. That is a message worth being the church for. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for calling us back to the simple truths that we lose sight of so many times. God, if anyone walked into this room this morning and they had forgotten that they were a beloved child of God, I hope that that message rang loud and clear. 
God, for those of us who have become distracted and divided over so many things, God, could you remember our baptisms? Remind us that you loved us first, that you established and called all of us by our names, that you call us your children, your daughters and sons, that you would ask that we could see each other's not as opponents, but as sisters and brothers in the faith. God, as we go about our lives this week, could you remind us that the reason we're here, not just in this church, but the reason we are here on this earth is because we have heard and have come to know a Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, who calls us each by name, whose love for us is so great and so deep that he would suffer the cross for us, whose power is so strong that he would rise again for us. God, could we take that message? Could we take that spirit and share it like a healing balm over a divided world? We pray for our leaders. We pray for our decision makers. We love you, God. We thank you. It's the name of the one who saves us, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.